If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Thank you. Thank you very much. So this panel is concerned with this classical distinction between madness and reason, this idea that we can define something the, as irrational or rational. Um, yet the madness of one epoch may become the sanity of the next, and the pages of history are littered with great artists and innovators who were deemed mad when they first explored their ideas. So might madness be a form of wisdom rather than its diseased opposite? Or is it a medical condition that needs to be defined and treated? So here to discuss this, we have a very fascinating panel. On my right, we have Robert Rowland Smith, who is Quantum Fellow of All Souls College, Oxford. He's also a consultant, lecturer, and writer in philosophy, literature, and psychoanalysis. And Robert's books include Death Drive and Breakfast with Socrates. Here we have on the far left Patricia Casey, who's professor of psychiatry and author of seven books related to mental health. Patricia's main focus is on adjustment disorders and spreading mental health awareness in her column Mind and Meaning in the Irish Independent. And here is Richard Bentel, who's professor of clinical psychology at the University of Liverpool and author of Madness Explained and Doctoring the Mind. And he researches in particular childhood trauma, psychosis and public mental health. And I'll start with Robert Rowland Smith. Thank you. When I was invited onto this panel, I thought uh, straight away of this famous spat in the 1960s between Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida. Michel Foucault had written this book called History of Madness, and Derrida said, well, there's a basic problem with writing a history of madness, because a history of madness is a rational project, right? It's a, it's a, re a reason-based project to write about madness, and Derrida's argument is, well, if there is such a thing as madness, it will always escape any rational account of it. So there's a kind of in-principle difficulty in even beginning to talk about madness because you are uh, cladding it about with rational structures. You're giving it conceptual architecture, which if it's mad, it will always somehow escape. So 
Um, I think that's a kind of general protocol to put into this debate. You know, can we ever touch this thing called madness using reason? After all, this panel is based on reason. This is a reason debate about madness and reason, not a mad debate about madness and reason. Well, it was pretty mad. Although, <laughs> we'll see what transpires in the next hour. So that's, um, I guess that's the first thing uh, to say. The next thing to say, I think, is that the, this, uh, you know, putting madness and reason as complete opposites um, might be a bit of a problem for various reasons. But one reason, I think, is to do with language, and maybe we'll talk about this uh, a bit today. So one of the reasons that this is a reasonable or reason-based session is that we understand one another in this room. Right? We're using the same language, and up to a point, I mean, we might not understand everything, but there's a convention that enables us to understand one another. And it strikes me that one definition of madness, or, or, or the mad person, is the person who can't be understood. So um, if you are, I mean, I do, um, with my other hat, as a consultant, a uh, kind of business consultant, I do actually quite a lot of work with mental health organizations. And uh, in some of the most kind of extreme cases, in the kind of forensic end, in high security wings of, of such institutions, you do, get, you do get people in those uh, institutions who are not possible to understand. They're speaking their own language, they are, as it were, beyond cognition or apparently beyond cognition or recognition by, uh, by so-called sane people. But it strikes me, actually, if you take one, let's use the word mad, mad person, and put them together with another mad person who speaks the same language, and those two people start conversing, the question becomes, well, are they still mad? You know, they're making sense to one another. You know, they have a conventional understanding. They're able to communicate in their own terms. They're making sense. So is that still madness? So I wonder if there's something about madness which is about an absolute kind of singularity, just being in isolation, not being understood by other people at all. But as soon as you, begun to be, you begin to become understood, I wonder if that begins to erase the difference between, uh, between madness and, and reason. And the third thing I, I would like to say, again, with my other hat on, is... is is I guess the question of whether it's reason that's the opposite of madness or sanity. So this panel could have been about madness and sanity as opposed to madness and reason, right? And it's very interesting that um, certainly the kind of professionals I work with in that sphere and my fellow, fellow panelists will probably say more about this. It's interesting that there's a real um, scale. You know, you're not either mad or sane. You know, there are degrees. Uh, there, there clearly are degrees. And what's particularly interesting for me is that there are so many things outside of the mind that create madness rather than things inside the mind. So certainly in these mental health organizations that I'm working with, there are simple checklists of indicators that lead to madness. So for example, if you have a decent home, if you have a job, if you have a family and friends, the chances of you developing mental illness go radically down uh, than, if you, than if you don't have those things. So although we tend to think of madness Psychosis is a kind of internally created kind of corruption of the brain in some way. Actually, in many, many ways, there are very simple social structures that can be put in place to relieve people of the anxiety that can blow up into kind of more extreme forms of stress and ultimately psychosis or schizophrenia and so on. So I'm quite interested in that idea of kind of madness that exists outside the brain and can be you know, uh, mitigated by very simple, sensible structures and kind of remind us that actually the opposite of madness is not necessarily reason, but sanity. And sanity can be produced by quite simple things, you know, having a home, having a job, having a network.
Thank you. That's great. Okay, I'm going to turn to Patricia Casey with the same question, which is, might madness be a strange form of wisdom rather than its diseased opposite? Yeah. Hoping to convince you all of my argument with this headline that I saw on uh, yesterday's Evening Standard. Sheep go on psychotic rampage through Welsh village after eating cannabis plants. And I was hoping that I would head out there with my injection, my needle, my syringe, inject the sheep and impress you all by the prowess of medication to treat these psychotic sheep. Um, unfortunately, it happened in Swansea, so they're nowhere near this part of the world and they may not have eaten the cannabis anyway. Um, I want to tell you about some patients because there's nothing like patients and ill people to ground you. Um, I'm a consultant psychiatrist, I'm, I see, I have a caseload of about 200 patients and I'm on call one week in four. I'm the, I'm the second on call, my junior doctors are the first on call, they're at the cold face. And so, get called two or three times, most nights, about patients usually presenting to the emergency department. I work in a general hospital. And uh, an example, one night I was called about a man um, in his 40s. He's well known to me. He has been a patient of mine for 18 months. He um, becomes, uh, he, he first became psychotic when he was abusing cannabis, but his recent um, episodes have been independent of cannabis. Um, his, his most, he has always had the following symptoms. He believes that his wife is poisoning his food. And she's only poisoning one of his foods, a particular fish that he eats, not his meat, not his vegetables, just his fish. How does he know that? He doesn't know how he knows that. He just knows that she is. Um, he's had four admissions in the 18 months I've been treating him, and all except the last one were under the Mental Health Act. Um, he was admitted compulsorily because of his level of disturbance. The most recent admission occurred when he um, he um, told his wife that he believed she was poisoning his food. There was a row, he hit her, he ran out of the house, he walked and ran for 20 miles round the perimeter of Dublin. He was eventually, the Gardaí were eventually notified that this man was behaving strangely when he tried to cross um, a six-lane motorway um, running out of Dublin, shouting, they're coming after me, they're coming after me. Fortunately, the traffic was, was at, at snail's pace because it was rush hour. The Gardaí were called and he was brought into the Garda station, this is the police station, then to um, my hospital, to the emergency department, and my junior doctor said to me, what will we do? Now, I didn't think to call the local philosopher, and I didn't think to call the local cognitive therapist. That will come later on, when he's well. But at the moment, he is acutely disturbed. I have to get him into hospital and treat him. We got him into hospital, he came voluntarily, and we put him on antipsychotic medication. Within two weeks, he was much better. He was able to have time out. Um, I, of course, had to warn his, his wife that he's very dangerous. He has always stopped taking medication once he's discharged, and on each occasion, he has become unwell. Was it rational for him to say that his wife was poisoning one food and one food only? Was it rational for him to believe that when he had no evidence of it and didn't, didn't know it? My answer to those is no, that was not rational. I do not believe that this poor man's behaviour, the, the illness that he's exhibiting, shows any 
any wisdom. The wisdom will come when he later gets insight and says, I, I know I was wrong in this. I, I misread things, I misinterpreted things. And medication will help him do that. Cognitive therapy may help him to do that, but the evidence is equivocal about it. But I will certainly be referring him for cognitive therapy, as I do all of my patients. Thank you very much, Patricia. And um, now I'll turn to Richard Bentle with the same question. Might madness be a strange form of wisdom rather than its diseased opposite? One of the benefits of being last, of course, is that I can reflect on the things which the two previous speakers say. And I can see actually some truth in both of them, but I have to say I'm probably closer to Robert. Um, I've been a clinical psychologist for 30-odd years, and my interest has actually been psychosis. And I've certainly met people, as Patricia um, describes, I'm not sure I've ever met somebody who's completely mad. I might have done on one or two occasions. But um, often when one gets into the details of people's lives, even if it's very difficult to reason with them under acute crisis or something of that sort, um, there is usually a story, a narrative, a tale, some way in which their experiences, their distress is connecting to the things which happen in, in their lives. Um, Many years ago, uh, a philosopher psychiatrist, Carl Jaspers, uh, tried to draw a distinction between madness and uh, sanity. And um, he focused particularly on the kind of beliefs that people, psychiatric patients have. And he came up with, he noted that beliefs of psychiatric patients tend to be held with extraordinary conviction, that are resistant to, psych uh, to, to um, counter-argument, and that they seem b bizarre and irrational to other people, rather like, to me, Brexit beliefs seem. Um, so, uh, and that, in a way, sort of summarises part of the problem because, you know, you have to ask, when, last time when you had a political argument, when was the last time you had a political argument? And the person you were arguing with thumped their forehead at the end and said, Doh, how could I be so stupid? It doesn't happen. <laughs> you know, positions, beliefs which are resistant to counter-argument are the norm, not the exception. But Giaspas came up with this further criterion, which is, which uh, Robert's hinted at, which is this idea about ununderstandability, that some people, at the end of the day, their beliefs are ununderstandable. It doesn't matter how hard you empathize with them, how hard you try and see their life stories, that the belief seems to have arisen almost spontaneously uh, without any kind of context at all. Now, I don't think I've... I struggle to think of anybody I've met for whom that's true. Of course, the problem with the understandability criterion is it depends to some extent on how hard you try and understand. And, you know, that's difficult. It depends on what kind of things you're willing to understand. What we do know is that psychosis, as Robert has pointed out, is related to people's life stories. This is what my current research interest is. It's what I've been passionately sort of interested in for the last 10 years because the standard story of psychiatric disorder is that it's something which goes wrong in the brain. And there is a brain story, and there is a story about you know, neurochemicals like dopamine. I think that's very important. It is part of the story, but it's only part of the story. We've looked at things like, for example, childhood trauma. Childhood trauma triples your chance of being psychotic. So if you're uh, sexually abused, physically abused, if all sorts of things, nasty happen to you in childhood, it triples your chance. And the more bad things which happen to you, the greater the chance. Growing up in poverty increases your chance of psychosis. Growing up in urban environments increases your chance of psychosis. There are many social determinants of psychosis. The determinants of mental health are all around us. We are sitting in them. We are soaked in them. They are everywhere. 
And these determinants push us in different kind of directions, and you can see understandable connections. So, for example, in my own research, one of the things we found out is that there seems to be a strong signature between sexual abuse and auditory hallucinations. It seems to be pretty specific. If you're sexually abused, then your chance of auditory hallucinations is massively increased. And there's an explanation to that, which I probably haven't got time to go into. But with just one, one, other, one other one, which is a little bit, might be make it a bit clearer, is, is what we found is that, is that people who are separated from their parents early in life and who are brought up, for example, people who are brought up in children's homes have a massive increased risk of paranoid delusions. Now, paranoia is about mistrust of those around you. Sometimes paranoia is sensible. It's a kind of rational process. And if you're brought up in a situation where you can't form those basic trusts in early life, you're more likely to be paranoid, of course. Of course, this is not to say that every paranoid person you know, is, is completely rational. People overestimate risk, but you can see the connection. Lovely. Thank you, Richard. Um, so moving on at an almost mad pace through this debate, we, um, we'll discuss a little bit more now what is madness. We've had some quite differing definitions of it. And I wanted to turn to Robert and ask, Robert, if you would respond in part to what Patricia's saying about the psychotic cannabis smoking ruminant or cannabis-eating ruminants, that there is a possibility of defining an absolute category of madness, that the in, or, or the poor man who had this terrible experience. Is that then where we can define, or can we somehow rephrase it? I think there is a, a possibility of defining a kind of absolute madness. I d I, um, what it makes me think of, and particularly the kind of the drug-taking, it makes me think of the first part of the question, you know, are, there, are there also benefits, I suppose, to madness? And of course, insofar as this is a philosophy festival and I'm a philosopher, it's kind of worth just reminding ourselves of um, you know, what Plato says about madness, because it's, it's really in the Platonic tradition that there is this link between madness and creativity. And then, of course, th and the link to drug-taking is, of course, with the uh, kind of English romantic poets like um, Coleridge and De Quincey, who took drugs in order to, particularly opium, in order to increase their own creativity. And it's a theme you see running through right to the present day. People will take drugs in order to increase their creativity or, you know, drink alcohol in order to increase their creativity. So there is that, all of that uh, going on in this. Um, and would you say then there's a kind of division in that between they begin in rationality and they then go into somewhere else that you might then call the irrational? What, what's sort of going on in your mind? I mean, my way of understanding it is that um, so long as we're talking about creativity, there is something important about suspending the inhibitor of reason, because reason can be an inhibitor in a creative process. It can force you to be too analytic. I mean, um, so for example, uh, I had a very interesting conversation with another writer recently who asked me, how fast do you write? I thought, well, that's a kind of strange question. But I uh, realized that I write very slowly, and the problem with writing very slowly is I become very self-conscious during the process. And the slower I write, the more I reflect on what I'm writing, the more I think, oh, that word isn't right, change that one. And the whole process kind of grinds down you know, uh, very, very slowly. Whereas the faster I write, almost the freer I become, because it suspends that rationality, if you like, which forces me to overanalyze what I'm doing. Now, of course, it's not, it's not like I'm being mad, necessarily, but I am nevertheless relaxing the grip of reason in some way, in a way, I guess, kind of analogous to the way in which drugs can release your inhibitions a little bit. So it's not, you know, necessarily an exercise of madness, but it is an exercise in, in uh, kind of shutting down the censor, I suppose, which reason sometimes brings with it. Because reason, 
to a large extent, is a kind of social convention. You know, we are adopting the form. You know, this is a, for example, we have a working assumption here in this room that we will behave in a certain way. You know, you guys will be quiet until the end. We'll talk until then. You know, we don't disrupt that. You know, there's a kind of conventional uh, aspect to it. So I don't know if there's a kind of absolute madness, but I do know there are benefits to suspending rationality. Yes, thank you, Robert. Patricia, would you like to respond? Is there an absolute madness? Are there times when it would be good to dispense with these ideas of I being reasonable? I, come to that. I just want to say, I'm not going to use the word madness. I hate the word madness. I think it should be abandoned. I think it's a, it's a voyeuristic, deeply stigmatizing word. I haven't used it to date, and I'm not going to use it now. Um, it, it's, it, it conjures up images of gothic horror, and of morbid fascination. So I think we should be talking, call it psychosis, but, but not, not madness. I think there's... Would you then say psychosis would include all categories of non-reason then? Is that how you would then... That would replace anything that we're not defining as reason yes. as a term? Yes, yes. Right. Um, um, You've, you've distracted me now there from my... From my so you were saying, I was asking you, <laughs> yes, my, oh are yes, there yes, any yes, points where we might I was going to say, there, I think there's a bit of an oversimplification about rationality. Even the most psychotic person that I have ever seen will have pockets where they're completely rational. We call it capacity in, in, in the jargon. Somebody has capacity in certain areas, may not have it in another area. And that's what happens in psychosis. In a particular area of their life, they may, not, they may have lost rationality for the time being, because with treatment, it is a temporary condition, generally. But other areas, I mean, my patients, I can have reasonable conversations with them about books, about music, about their families, about their hobbies. It's not as though they're talking completely gibberish. That's a complete misunderstanding. It's just in a certain area of their lives. Now, we talk about understandability. I see many patients where their symptoms do not come from any particular understandable um, narrative in their lives. For example, I once had a patient, and this is, I could, I could go on for the day, I made a list of them here in case I had time, but I clearly won't have, I won't. Um, a patient, uh, 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 he, he tried to crucify himself by putting nails into his, into his feet. And he, he, while he was in hospital, he, he was on the surgical ward being treated for, 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 for his wounds, and then he came down to the psychiatric ward. And he kept saying, I have done terrible things, I feel I should die like Jesus etc etc we treated him with antidepressants and with antipsychotics because i felt he had a psychotic depression and when he recovered um he said to me he said you know doctor i must have been terribly sick because i'm an atheist <laughs> <laughs>
which was, I mean, in a way, at some stage, that behavior, and a, you know, an anchorite might have embraced that sort of behavior and in a different setting. And Rich, I want to ask you, these categories of reason and unreason, not to use madness, they change through time. I mean, if we're trying to define them, is it, is it arguable then that they are culturally relative? So just, just before I, I kind of answer that question, yes, you I'd just like to respond to, Patricia, to yes. that. My, my thought about your patient, I've obviously never met him, is that maybe he was. You know, there is a, some sense about whether you're an atheist or you're a, you're a believing God. I mean, I've kind of most of my life thought I was an atheist. I kind of think of myself as agnostic now, but even when I was an atheist, at night during difficult times, I prayed as I went to sleep. You know, was I an atheist? I think most atheists, you talk to atheists, you ask them if they pray, they'll tell you that they do quite a lot. So I don't think that's kind of, you know, I think that's kind of an interesting example where there might be some underlying you know, sort of religious or some sort of need of some sort, which comes out during, during psychosis. Uh, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> 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 so uh, then I was asking oh, about these categories time? through time. Yes. Well, so can we have an eternal definition? Well, well, they do change over time. The, the, the poster child, of obviously, is, is homosexuality, which at one time was thought to be a mental illness, and nobody in this part of the world, I take it, thinks that that's the case now. Uh, and but there are but of course it's easy to say well uh, homosexuality is just you know it's a peculiar example and it doesn't really correspond to other things which we think of in terms of mental illness. So a better one may be hearing voices. So hearing voices is supposed to be a pathognomic symptom for psychosis. If you hear voices, you're supposed to be psychotic. Um, and it used to be thought that this was a actually quite small proportion of the population. Maybe about half to one percent were have this experience of hearing voices, sometimes taunting them, saying horrible things to them when there's nobody actually there. Epidemiological studies, however, show that it's a much larger proportion of the population. It's probably somewhere between 5 and 10% of the population hear voices. And that's a consistent finding over many studies. And the other thing which emerges is it turns out, so what are these people who hear voices who are not uh, known to psychiatric services? And they seem to be they vary. Some of them are just suffering in silence, but some of them are not suffering. Some of them are quite happy to hear voices. Many years ago, there was a Dutch psychiatrist, Marius Rom, who uh, discovered that there were, he was one of the people who made this discovery. He was a, uh, he's a remarkable man. He's very old now. Um, and I met him actually very soon after he discovered this. He, he actually popped in to see me at Liverpool. He was travelling through. And I was absolutely, my, you know, I was gobsmacked by this claim. Uh, but he, so he invited me to a conference of people who hear voices in Holland. Not a conference about people who hear voices, a conference of people who hear voices. And about half the people there were people who were tormented by voices but actually not responded to medication or were pretty unhappy with the treatment they'd had. And about half of them were people who were happy hallucinators. And basically, the happy hallucinators spent a lot of their time trying to persuade the unhappy hallucinators to be happy hallucinators. <laughs> and Marius Rom said to me, as we walked into this conference center, he warned me, you know, be careful, because they don't like mental health professionals very much. But basically, he said to me, as we walked into the, the conference center, one of the most important things which anybody has said to me in my entire professional life. He said, Richard, I really like your research on hearing voices, because I was doing research in that area at the time. Still am. I really like your, your, your research on hearing voices, but the trouble is you do want to cure people who hear voices, don't you? <laughs> he said, I think they're like homosexuals in the 1950s. They need liberating, not curing. 
That's and I think that's a really yeah. powerful that's thought. That's great. And also that's brilliant because it leads us into our next category, our next theme. So thank you, Richard, which is about how we respond to cases of madness. Robert, if I turn to you, that if you are a happy hearer of voices, then the, the clinical response may not be required. I mean, there it depends, does it not, then on the setting and the individual, how we respond? Um, yeah, completely. And um, it may I want to make the connection again with uh, philosophy and with literature because... In the literary tradition, and indeed in the musical tradition, and the philosophical tradition, we have this idea very explicitly that people hear voices in the notion of the muse. So the muse is that figure who speaks through you. And uh, if you talk to artists, writers, you read interviews, people will often say, well, it just came to me. It just came to me. You know, I wasn't really doing it. I was just painting, writing, drawing, making a song, you know, as if I were the vehicle of something else and it kind of overtook me in a good way it was a kind of felicitous hallucination and in a sense what these people are saying is i need to get out of my own way in order for that process to take place so that the that voice whether it is my voice or somebody else's voice is freer has a kind of more open channel through me uh, in which to express itself so i mean i agree very much with you know what richard says there i mean you've got that yeah, I mean, happy hallucinators, I don't know if that's what you call it, but there is that necessity, I think, in uh, creative processes precisely to allow yourself to become attuned to a voice, which may be yours, may come from elsewhere, but it's a voice that's certainly different from your everyday voice. Um, and that's what makes it special and unique and gives it a kind of peculiar uh, value to it. And I think in that sense, you know, we should, to some degree, be encouraging people to hear that voice. Right. Yes, Patricia, would you like to come in? Should we should we then demarcate the cases that really need treatment? And yeah, absolutely. I have two comments, though. Or t there are two issues here. Um, Robert, I'm not sure if you're speaking metaphorically about voices or not, or if you're speaking literally about voices. Because when a psychiatrist, and this is what we have to do in the clinical process when we're talking to patients, find out are they speaking metaphorically, um, you know, creative people say this this voice is talking to me this inner voice is telling me things spiritual people say the same thing religious people say the same thing and that's very different from the voice that the person with a psychosis has the person with the psychosis hears a voice they look around they don't see them they search for them um, we know that that hallucinations even of that sort occur in the general population and, and they, are, they are quite common. If we're talking about the metaphorical voice, the creative voice, then absolutely that should be encouraged. If we are talking about voices where the person hears a voice that isn't their own, the person talks about them or talks to them and they look around and don't see them and wonder where it's coming from, I think it depends whether, whether they're troubled or distressed by it or not. If somebody is distressed, isn't distressed, I certainly wouldn't be offering them any treatment. Um, if they're distressed and dysfunctional because of it, they're not able to get on with work because it's so upsetting for them, then I think they do need treatment. Of course, most of the people that I see will be referred because they, these voices are troubling them. These paranoid delusions are troubling them. And we know from, from research that while they're common in the general population, the more of these seemingly normal uh, we'll, if we call them that, um, experiences, the more they occur and the more, the more symptoms that there are in any individual who isn't going for treatment, the, the greater the decrement in their day-to-day in their, in their -day functioning. So, 
at, at one level, some people are very happy and able to manage these voices and aren't troubled by them and get on with life, but another group are, and they are the group that, 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 need, that need intervention. Interestingly, the role of cognitive therapy, which Richard is, is involved with in managing hallucinations, is not necessarily to remove the hallucinations, but to help people to live with them and accept them and adjust to them. And I, I fully support that. Okay, I want to, so I saw Richard both nodded and shook his head during your, while you were speaking, Patricia. So I, but I just wanted quickly before turning to you to ask Robert to clarify this metaphorical, literal, extremely quickly, if possible. Uh, well, uh, sorry, more metaphorical than, than literal. But I, uh, can I add something to that? Yes, briefly, um, yes. Briefly. Well, we're talking about, we're concentrating more on madness, I think, in this debate, or unreason, non-reason, than we are on reason. And it's as if we have a working understanding of what reason is, and I don't think that's the case, actually. And I think there are, I mean, you mentioned Brexit, for example. If you think about the Brexit debate at the moment, on both sides we have people convinced that they are being reasonable, right, on both sides. As if, uh, but what that shows us is that, well, they can't both be right, if there is such a thing as reason, then reason would prevail and there wouldn't be two opposite sides because reason is supposed to be universal, right? So what we're looking at is really rhetoric on both sides. Whoever you agree with, what we're looking at is two forms of rhetoric which are presenting themselves as reason. But I think that's always the case. There's no such thing as a reason which is devoid of rhetoric except in very absolute cases like mathematics or something like that. So let's not sort of work with the assumption that there is this pure thing called reason that everybody could fall back on were they not mad or psychotic or hallucinatory. Anyway, I just Thank wanted you. to put that. Thank you. That's great. Yes, so Richard, would you like to respond well, like to, to it, Patricia talking about cognitive say, therapy and also to Robert? I agree with what you've yes. said about that. I think, you know, reason is not of the kind of mathematical sort is hardly ever seen in, in ordinary everyday life. Um, yeah, the thing which I... Um, I think I was I was kind of nodding against was the the kind of idea that w was was you know the point I want to make is that many of the people who hear voices actually do hear they think their voices just in the same sense as the distressed people hear voices. So uh, if you want to see an example of that, the best example is probably to look at the TED talk by Helena by Eleanor Longdon, who is a voice hearer. Um, so. Um, so these people who are happy hallucinators seem to be not much different than the unhappy hallucinators, and what seems to be different is their attitude to voices compared to the unhappy hallucinators. And the bit I was agreeing with was, you know, the, the aim of one aim of CBT might be to help people who are unhappy hallucinators become sort of more accepting of their experiences. But I think overshadowing all this is a stark fact, which I think I want to just point out to everybody, and that's this. If you look in physical medicine, and you look at uh, cancer or heart disease, you see a steady improvement in outcomes since the end of the Second World War. What's happened is that if you're going to have a heart attack, have it now, don't have it in 1945. If you have cancer, have it now, don't have it in 1945. That is not true for psychiatric disorders. As best as we can tell, now there's really good, there's a meta recent meta-analysis by John McGrath looking at all outcome studies from before the, from before the uh, Second World War to today, outcomes haven't improved. In as much as things have improved, it's possibly because we are slightly kinder to people with psychiatric difficulties. Now, that doesn't actually reflect well on either psychiatry or clinical psychology. It doesn't suggest that either profession has actually found the magic you know, bullet which will fix psychosis. So if we look at, you mentioned that uh, the 
outcome data for CBT is not as good as we would like it to be, and I completely agree with that. You know, CBT is not a panacea for psychosis, but the outcome data for antipsychotics isn't particularly wonderful either. If you look at the short-term effects, it seems to be quite good, and I certainly would support the use of antipsychotics for patients who consent when they're in an acute crisis, and under some circumstances, even possibly for patients who wouldn't consent. So I'm not against their use. But the long-term outcome of this huge industry of psychiatry and clinical psychology, which we have developed to deal with psychosis, is frankly not brilliant. And that suggests that we really need to be rethinking our whole approach to this whole area. And we need to you know, give up on the assumptions that we as mental health professionals know, you know what the therapeutic fix is, because we don't. Thank you. That's great. Okay, I think we're going to move into the third section of the debate, which is about the question of, which we've touched on already, is there wisdom outside of rationality? And I wanted to turn to Patricia, really to ask you to respond to Robert's idea of the muse and this kind of tradition of people receiving inspiration in ways that we might not perceive as rational. I mean, would you commend that tradition? or Well, well I, I think Robert answered it himself. He said he was speaking largely metaphorically, and absolutely, of course, I commend that. I'm speaking about the kinds of people... That, 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 I, that I treat the people who hear the voices, who are concrete voices, they, they actually hear voices, they look for them. I'm speaking about that group, not about the people who are getting creative urges uh, from, from some, some, some force within them or outside them. Um, in response to, to Richard's suggestion that the prognosis for mental illness um, hasn't really improved for, for, for decades, the, the first antipsychotic agent was discovered in 1952, serendipitously, and by a surgeon, as it happens. And uh, four years later, the psychiatric hospitals began to unlock their doors and to take down their walls <laughs> because, it's not funny, it's very serious, because people are actually getting better. For the first time, there was a recognised treatment that helped people overcome their psychosis. We now know, of course, that all the psychiatric hospitals have thankfully, thankfully have, have gone. The, the, the evidence for either short-term use or intermittent use of antipsychotics is very worrying and point suggests that those who only take antipsychotics intermittently or in the short term relapse again. So that is why if somebody has had more than two episodes of psychosis, we prescribe antidepressants long term. That's what the NICE guidelines recommend. It's evidence-based treatment. And as a doctor, I have to practice evidence-based medicine. I can't experiment because, you know, I could, I could, I could, I could uh, cause great tragedy. It could lead to death. Suicide is as common in people with schizophrenia as in other groups when they don't take treatment. So I have to work with evidence-based practice and the evidence is that long-term medication, contrary to what Richard says and contrary to his belief that it causes long-term damage, is actually beneficial. Okay. Can I um, Richard, just respond to that? Respond? Just on a simple matter of fact, it isn't the case that antipsychotics cause the reduction in mental hospital uh, populations. That reduction actually began very slightly in the Western world before the introduction of antipsychotics. Only a few years, that's admittedly true, but it did begin before that. P the psychiatric hospitals closed because people wanted them to close. It's as simple as that, for all sorts of reasons, political reasons, partly to save money, actually. But the, um, in other parts of the world, such as Japan, the psychiatric hospital population continued to increase up to very recent times, despite the introduction of antipsychotics. So if 
psychiatric hospital population is considered to be proof of the effectiveness of antipsychotics. They obviously don't work in Japan. It's, it, they're just a two unconnected phenomena. In terms of the long-term outcome, the data is actually quite messy. It's just not clear that there's actually only, I think, seven trials which have actually looked at the long-term outcome of antipsychotics against placebo and you know, uh, there was a meta-analysis recently, so that's a synthesis of the data on that, and it didn't show a long-term benefit. So I, you know, it's, it's the, the quality of drug trials is, is, is pretty poor, which is another problem in this area. So, uh, yeah. that's, very, uh, that's a very interesting Sorry. debate, which we hopefully will have yeah. more time for I in the audience. So I wanted to kind of lasso us back onto this idea of wisdom outside of rationality and ask Robert, I mean, you were talking about the tradition of people act actively seeking a state beyond the rational, taking opium, the romantics. I mean, this idea and other sort of psychotropic drugs that people have taken in the 20th century. I mean, it, these people are questing for something, aren't they, beyond these parameters of the rational? Yeah, exactly. They're pushing, they're pushing reason in one direction, which is towards a kind of, um, a kind of transcendence of reason in some way. But of course, I mean, it also works the other way. There are some people who are trying to become uh, ultra-rational as well, and we have examples of that too. I mean, if you take the example of, for example, uh, of uh, fascism. Fascism, at, uh, so I remember when I was uh, in Oxford, I remember setting an exam paper with the question, is fascism rational? Well, of course, in a certain sense, it is rational. It's nothing but rational. You know, it's a purely rational, rationalistic solution to uh, an apparent problem. But of course, there's nothing reasonable about it at all. So the thing about you know reason as rationality is that it can be pushed to an to a, to a degree in which it becomes inhuman, or if you think about something like bureaucracy, you know bureaucracy is an extremely rational solution to the problem of social administration. You know, it's, it's very rational, but as we all know, you know if you try and call up your local council, or, you know it's, it can be absolutely maddening because the rationality has got to an extent where each department in the council is doing its own thing but not talking to one another. So you can't get through to the next department because they don't know who the next department is or what the common issue of common concern might be. So I think there are, what I'm saying is there are, you know, if, if there's this thing called reason, people have tried to transcend it in two very different ways. You know, one is a sort of, let's call it a creative way, but that's, you know, let's remember that reason itself contains the seeds of something extremely inhuman Kind of uh, a kind of rationalism that makes um, that kind of makes for a kind of very chilly environment for people to live in. Thank you. And just I mean, before we turn to the audience, I wanted to ask this question of you, Richard. You were talking about homosexuality and this absolutely required change in attitude. And I mean, are there times when it's necessary to kick against the notion of the reasonable that people actively have to push the definition of it in order to make social change? That these must be. Ooh, and gosh, insist on a, a wisdom beyond it, in a way, beyond uh, these ideas. Uh, somebody sent me a quote from H.H.P. Taylor recently when I was f embroiled in a quite tricky political battle uh, inside my own university, and it was just a quote. It basically said, uh, if you want to chair in a university, be reasonable and toe the line, but if you want to change the world, be a troublemaker. Only troublemakers change the world. And that's true. I'm not sure... I think this is probably where I do agree with Patricia, actually, that people who are in states of you know, s acute psychotic crisis are usually not in the business to change anything, actually. You know, the distress and so on is, is often overwhelming, which is why I would support uh, you know, providing certainly short-term medication for people of that sort uh, in that sort of difficulty. Um, 
but yeah, what, what is clear is that people are willing to stand up against convention. People who do think outside the box. And there is a link between that thinking outside the box and psychosis to some extent. Uh, they are the people who tend to change the world. Yes, thank you. And Patricia, just one last question. Would you have treated Van Gogh? Would you have said, come on, come over here, we can sort you out? I mean, how would you, in response well, to these Van, clearly... Van Gogh probably produced his best work when he wasn't ill during his periods of remission, so I would probably have put him on lithium, yes. <laughs> OK, right. <laughs> can, I say, can, can I say <laughs> that the, the idea that they're all psychiatric illness is the same as psychosis is untrue, and maybe the homosexuality uh, uh, analogy isn't quite appropriate because nobody ever said that homosexual people had psychosis. They said they had mental illness but not psychosis, in the same way that phobias are regarded as psychiatric disorders. So that's just a point of worth clarifying, I think. Thank you very much for all your wonderful questions. Thank you to our brilliant panel. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.